Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Dynamite, it's often said, comes in small packages. It's one of the remarkable ironies of history that the smallest state in the Union, Rhode Island, the Ocean State, played a major role in securing the future of that Union. During the Revolutionary War, this tiny colony, less than 50 miles tall and less than 40 miles wide, served as one of the most valuable prizes of the entire conflict, and therefore was one of the most saturated with spies on both sides, traveling in disguise by day and under cover of night, hoping to gain an edge on the intelligence needed to take control control not just of the state, but of the region, and by extension, the entire direction of the war. Here to take us deep undercover and tell us why Rhode Island mattered so much is historian Christian McBurney, author of Spies in Revolutionary Rhode Island, published by the History Press. To conclude our brief series on spies, we could not be more delighted to end on such a detailed account of the men and women, their courage, their tools, their methods, and their willingness to risk their lives for the future they believed in. It's the stuff, not just of fiction, but of legend. And yet, every bit of it is true. Christian, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. We are so happy to have you. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. So you have been working on issues in Rhode Island history and Revolutionary War history for quite a long time. How did you get your start in this field? Well, I actually wrote a book about the history of my hometown, Kingston, Rhode Island, when I was 16 years old. And uh, then, uh, you know, moved to, became a lawyer, moved to Washington, D.C. area, I uh, had kids. Kids are growing up. They like to play with me. And then suddenly they got to an age where they didn't like to play with me. So I said, well, what am I going to do with my time? And I said, oh, I'll, I'll rewrite that book on the history of Kingston. I'll do the adult version, which is what I did. And I liked writing. I liked the history. So I decided, well, I love the Revolutionary War. always have. What can I do with Rhode Island and the American Revolution? And the outstanding action was uh, the Rhode Island campaign and ending in the Battle of Rhode Island. So uh, I did that. And then I said, well, what's the second most interesting thing? And I think it's the uh, art, well, during the British occupation of, of, of Rhode Island, I thought it was the capture of Richard Prescott. Uh, the, the Americans uh, in Rhode Island secretly rode over, uh, surrounded the uh, house where the commanding general of the British army was, captured him, spirited him away and got away. And and then they, uh, uh, I said, well, that's not enough for a book by itself. So I, the reason they did that uh, special operation was because they needed a major general to exchange for Major General Charles Lee, who had been captured at a tavern in New Jersey. Uh, he was num- uh, George Washington's number two. He had been captured at a tavern in New Jersey uh, uh, earlier. So uh, I made that into a book. So it, they all seemed to come together. And then uh, Well, spies, that's certainly interesting. Everyone loves spies, so I did that book next. Spies in Revolutionary Rhode Island. Let me just ask you one quick question. We have had a lot of guests on this show, and we have been fascinated to hear the origin stories of their interests um, each, each time. You are, I think, the first of our authors who got their start at 
I'm just going to make sure I heard this right. 16 as in <laughs> one six. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Can you just uh, take us to that moment at which most, you know, kids growing up in uh, sophomore, junior year of high school are out racing cars on dirt tracks and uh, maybe getting into some other kind of mischief. And yet here you are in the archives writing a book. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to uh, explain it. Um, I was always interested in history. Uh, my parents, uh, Got a house in Kingston, built in 1809, very historic house. The town itself is very historic, has about 40 to 50 historic buildings, including George Washington visited there during the war even. So there was a lot of good history, and uh, there was also the uh, bicentennial at the time. Um, I uh, was working as a summer camp counselor and, and came home, didn't have anything to do, so I said, you know what, I'll just go to the library and do some research on Kingston. I don't know how I decided to do a history book, but it turned out that way. Well, that is fascinating. I would love to to know whether that that early edition, you know, the very first edition still exists and uh, whether you can put it side by side with the current editions, you know, of your work, what joy that would be. Well, it's definitely a, a children's, a teenager's view uh, versus a, uh, an adult view, <laughs> which came out later. The, and out of the mouth of babes, right? Sometimes we find the truest wisdom. Now, you write early on that Rhode Island had some of the most heated espionage of the entire Revolutionary War. And I think you're absolutely right that spies are just intrinsically interesting. Um, Rhode Island occupies a unique position in the war. Why? Two questions for you, and maybe flip sides of the same coin, Christian. Um, First, why was there so much espionage in Rhode Island? And second, what were the stakes regarding Rhode Island's strategic position in the war? Sure. I'd say the number one reason was Narragansett Bay. Narragansett Bay is uh, one of the best, perhaps the best freshwater port for large ships on the East Coast. So it was crucial, you know, it was uh, for the British Navy could come in there and uh, um, have its ships uh, refitted and away from storms. Uh, Newport, Rhode Island was the main town uh, on Aquidneck Island, it's called. Uh, and because it was an island, it could be easily occupied by the British, not only the town of Newport, but the rest of the island, Portsmouth and Middletown to the north. So uh, you know, it was easy. You know, navies were really important in those days, and Brit- Britain had the, the uh, control of the, of the seas, so to speak, for most of the time. Uh, so that was... Uh, uh, why Newport and Narragansett Bay are so important. There were a few times when the war could have ended, uh, when the British occupied Newport from uh, December 1776 to October 1779, and the French uh, got involved with uh, helping the Americans uh, first at Newport. Uh, The fleet arrives, and uh, the British burn a bunch of their frigates, uh, 32-gun frigates, too, and they're scared that the French can take them over. And, and if the Americans, uh, you know, joint military operation with the French can take over Newport and capture the British uh, uh, garrison of more than 5,000 troops, that could have ended the war. Uh, it didn't. It didn't uh, succeed the, for a variety of reasons, uh, although the Battle of Rhode Island is, is very interesting. Uh, and then after that, the British left, and then the French arrived, Rochambeau. And uh, the French fleet and 6,000 French soldiers just waiting around for the right time to help. Uh, 
And finally they did. They marched down to, uh, and during that time, of course, there was a, 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 a lot of spying being done both times. Uh, but then finally in June of uh, 19, 1781, uh, Bow's troops start marching down to Yorktown and, and Washington and Rochambeau uh, jointly capture uh, Cornwallis's army which at Yorktown, which uh, leads to the uh, end of the war and American independence secured. It is a remarkable uh, journey, and I think we forget just how many steps there were along the way towards securing independence, and this is such a critical one. One of the tensions that you draw out in your book, and you're very upfront about this, and it's a very moving uh, sort of thread that you weave throughout the the account, is you write, you know, the Revolutionary War was not just a war of um, occupier versus occupied or colonizer versus, you know, a colonial citizen. It was a civil war, right? You had divided loyalties um, all throughout uh, the land. Can you describe for us the tensions that were felt between patriots and loyalists in Rhode Island at the time? Most of Rhode Island was uh, patriot supporters, uh, definitely one of the colonies that had the highest percentage of patriot supporters. But there was a good number of uh, loyalists, especially in Newport, the most important city in, uh, in Rhode Island. There were a number of uh, successful merchants and others tied to merchants who uh, supported the, the crown. They didn't see any reason to leave it. And curiously, in, in a place called North Kingstown, there was a hotbed of, uh, of loyalists there. And it really was a, a civil war in many ways, uh, definitely dominated by the patriots. And uh, the loyalists could you know, by spying, uh, they could help out the British, and that's they certainly did that a lot. But both sides had ancestors going back to the very founding of Rhode Island in the 17th century. I mean, these names are, are you know, the founders' names for Rhode Island, and yet they were going at each other's throats. And at the uh, by the end of the war, after the war, a, a number of Tories uh, lost their, you know, left the Rhode Island and never came back, and they lost their estates. Some of them tried to come back and reclaim their estates, but they did not succeed. So it was uh, painful for them. Now, one of the issues that arises, of course, in a a state that has such um, sort of fraught tensions socially, right? I was really struck by this as I read your account. It's just how intimate the uh, the relationships were between, say. Um, merchants and buyers or between ship captains and crew between uh you know neighbors right who had previously been on you know the same terms and then these tensions spilled over and they caused this this conflict and one of the things that made spying uh, exceptionally dangerous in rhode island was that kind of everybody knew everybody as we say <laughs> um, absolutely, or, or absolutely. If, yeah. if you if you were known you were very likely to be recognized even if you were under deep cover uh, you know in some form right right absolutely. It's, uh, it's it's tense it's yeah yeah it gives rise to one of the uh, spies uh, john trevette he was a um from newport originally but newport was taken over by the british so uh, but he wound up going on a uh, a uh, a ship that went to newport to for an exchange of prisoners. And when you do that, you got to be very careful. Uh, but he decided, oh, well, I'm, you know, I've grown out my beard. Maybe no one will recognize me. And I'll just uh, walk around Newport and see if I can gather some intelligence. Well, highly uh, dangerous thing to do. Everybody knows him. He's from Newport. They all know each other, like you said. So he goes, uh, winds up, winds up at a few taverns and 
talks to the tavern keeper. He knows who's a patriot. The patriot's scared to death. He's going to be recognized. Uh, there is uh, one guy he sees on the street, William Crossing, a notorious Tory. He you know, goes around the corner and avoids him. He's uh, walking again. And then uh, a prestigious merchant, John Watton, calls out Trevitt's name. He knows Trevitt's a patriot. and He's an officer for the Continental Marines uh, and the Continental Navy. Uh, but uh, Trevitt ignores him and, and goes back to the ship and ultimately is is not uh, caught, fortunately for him. So Trevitt's story raises some fascinating questions about the intelligence activity of the time. And to my mind, uh, Christian, Trevitt's experience really brings to the fore the issues surrounding movement, okay? So there's movement across a landscape in which you have sort of traversing Narragansett Bay and the many inlets and bayous and coves, and and then you have the overland routes, which have checkpoints and which have uh, sort of military installations and uh, topography that you have to navigate. Movement itself is not straightforward. We, we definitely see that in Rhode Island. So that's one aspect of the difficulty of collecting intelligence. The other aspect, as you say, is moving around town. So uh, surely you must have encountered some remarkable sources that describe how movement actually worked in this time where things were so close up and personal. Well, uh, you know, John Trevett could not be a spy. Um, so any spies had to uh, be in disguise and because... People knew each other, especially there weren't as, as many spies on uh, Quidnick Island because they knew people knew each other or the British had it pretty tightly controlled. Some of the most successful spies were the ones who you wouldn't expect. So uh, men of color, uh, African-American servants and enslaved people uh, and, and women as well. So um, those are two examples of people. Oh, well, you know, they're, they're just, uh, you know, they're not capable of being spies. We don't have to worry about them. But that uh, turned out not to be the case, and there was some useful information gained from both of those types of sources. Yeah, and, and you know, when you realize that that level of familiarity, which exists everywhere, uh, one thing that struck me is a bit of tradecraft actually that comes into it. So you write uh, on, uh, I believe it's that you have an interesting account of. Um, the countersigns that were being used, signs and countersigns that were being used uh, between different military personnel uh, in order to establish sort of, you know, friend or foe, or you on our side and so forth. Can you can you just explain to our listeners who may not be aware what signs and countersigns are? Sure. Uh, the British uh, Army would have uh, patrols up and down the coast on the Quidnick Island, and the soldiers would be given a uh, countersign that evening. Maybe it would be, uh, you know, for king and country, uh, that would be the countersign. And if you didn't know it, and then you were caught on the road, um, you could uh, be in, look like you might be a spy. You could you could be in trouble. But uh, at one time, uh, a deserter left uh, Rhode Island, which uh, hundreds did, especially German deserters. And at one time, they told some uh, people, uh, civilians, it looked like, uh, in Little Compton, what the uh, countersign was that night. And so those guys said, oh, well, we can take advantage of that. So they went across uh, Sakonet River and, went on to Quidnick Island and used the countersign successfully and walked around uh, Newport and came back with some intelligence. Dangerous, of course. I mean, if they had uh, been apprehended, perhaps they would have been, we would not have ever learned about their story, right? Absolutely. 
I mean, going back to your, uh, you know, how do you move as a spy? I think the outstanding example of that was uh, Isaac Goodman. Uh, now, he uh, immigrated to Newport in 1774. He was a German Jewish doctor. So he wasn't known. He was hardly known at all, especially outside of Newport. And when the British occupied Newport, they were looking for spies. And Goodman, you know, he, had, he didn't have enough time to uh, be infused with that independent, renowned spirit. So he agreed to become a, a spy. And he uh, went to Providence. But his problem was he still had a German accent, which in Providence at that time was very unusual. So they said, who's this guy with a German accent? They put him in a prison. But, uh, you know, prisoners do have rights. He had to come up for trial within a certain time. When he came up for trial, no one came to say, oh, you're a spy. So they let him loose. But they didn't send him back to Newport. He, and so he hung around, and he hung around in taverns. Taverns were a great place uh, to pick up uh, information. And uh, he found about a secret expedition that the Americans were planning. Uh, this was the first major expedition by the Americans to take over Newport. Uh, and uh, surprisingly, it was called Spencer's Expedition after the U.S. American commander, Joseph Spencer of, of Connecticut. He was, his base was in Providence. And uh, they had this uh, plan of um, we're going to uh, raise by draft uh, about 10,000 uh, American soldiers, uh, militia, not Continental Army, just New England militia, which they did, from, mostly from Massachusetts, but also Rhode Island and Connecticut. And most of them showed up uh, in uh, Little Compton and Tiverton. They were hiding in the woods. The British had no idea they were there, no idea the danger they were in. As a matter of fact, they only had a garrison of about 3,500, and they were about to send 650 of those soldiers to raid New Bedford. Uh, and then suddenly Goodman um, arrives unexpectedly. No one knows who he is takes actually a day for him to get to the British commander, but then he tells the British commander on the very day that the Americans were going to uh, invade the island, tells him about the planned invasion, and he had very accurate information. And the British were able to reinforce their posts. They started firing some cannon at some boats, American boats that started going down the river, and the uh, invasion that night just didn't go off. So, uh, you know, Goodman was definitely... One of the most successful spies, not only in Rhode theater, but any theater during the American Revolution. And it was because, uh, in large part, because, you know, no one knew who he was. He was a stranger. That is that is incredibly pivotal to actually sort of ward off an entire uh, front, you know, from ever, ever occurring. That is... Um, we we can debate back and forth over you know which which actions are consequential and which are not, but I think that one clearly stands in the former camp, doesn't it? Yes, you know a lot of the spying you hear it's it's interesting stuff and it's dangerous, no question about that. So any spies puts their lives in danger, but it doesn't necessarily have a consequential effect, like you said. This one definitely did. So, as part of your discussion of the context of Goodman's work, you also introduce a very interesting set of. Um, intelligence agents, uh, a father and son duo, the Taggarts, uh, William Taggart Sr. and William Taggart Jr. Now, they went on some adventures, and they, um, they had a unique story to tell. Tell us about the Taggarts. Uh, William Taggart Sr. was a substantial farmer. Yeah, he, his farm was north and east of Newport, uh, near the coast, and across the river was Little Compton and Tiverton, Little Compton, both of which were that's where the American soldiers were hiding. And uh, William Taggart Sr. said, well, I'm going to send 
a message to my son, William Taggart Jr., who's one of the officers in the American Army, and I asked him to come visit me in my home in, uh, you know, east of Newport in Middletown, which uh, the son did. Dangerous, obviously, to do that, especially, uh, you know, well, you know there are patrols all the time. Uh, and the son, the father said, I will give you intelligence of British uh, locations of the regiments and which ones are where and what their numbers are. Uh, and they agreed. So um, uh, the, the son did do that. The, uh, the son went back, talked to General Spencer. General Spencer was thrilled to have that kind of intelligence. And there was intelligence going back and forth where the son would visit the father and be told uh, about uh, troop uh, locations and regiment locations. So valuable information before the invasion. But just on the day of the invasion, uh, which Isaac Goodman had spoiled, um, uh, they were all on the coast getting ready to be signaled. They were actually going to be taken, the father and son were going to be taken across the river uh, to safety, but the invasion never happened. So the father decided to leave. Uh, now, before then, interestingly, Isaac Goodman, you remember the, the doctor, the spy, he told the British there is a spy on the island and he knows all of the movements and he knows all where the troops are located and he's on the coast. Well, that was William Taggart Sr. So some uh, blabbermouth in a tavern probably told uh, Goodman about that spy. Probably it had to be an officer of um, the American army. But fortunately, the British didn't catch him before he left. But after he left, tragically, um, uh, the British found out about it and uh, just uh, had German soldiers just plunder and level his house by removing all the boards and just plowing it. There was nothing left but dirt. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. There's a, there's a through line here between what happened with the Taggarts and what happened to many of the families whose names came up in our interview with Bill Blyer, um, your fellow history press colleague who wrote a book about George Washington's spy ring on Long Island. I mean, here on Long Island, we see so many occasions of the British retaliating against uh, patriot landowners, patriot farm owners by not just plundering, but absolutely raising their properties to the ground as a, as a result of their uh, political uh, sensibilities, shall we say. And it struck me that here we have an echo of that you know, 
Yeah, no insurance in those days either. So. No, who do you go to? I mean, <laughs> and, uh, if you were bankrupt, you'd be yeah. thrown in jail. So it was a. Uh, it was not easy. Well, so since you mentioned the German mercenaries, I think it's absolutely uh, worth mentioning the other aspect of the Taggart tale, which is this um, this man named Kujo who was working alongside them. And I think it is easy for us, those of us who are a little far removed from our American history classes, uh, to forget that part of this conflict was fought through foreign mercenaries you know the the both the union uh, excuse me both the sorry previous interview with a uh, civil war both the patriot and the loyalist uh, armies absolutely relied on outside help to uh, muster their forces and to bolster their attack strength and so forth the hessian mercenaries played a pretty important role here and uh, Kujo, uh, who was working with the, the Taggarts, managed to gain some intelligence from them. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, um, Kujo was a, an enslaved man. Uh, enslaved people, uh, sometimes uh, they gain their freedom by joining the British and, and serving as spies as well. Um, but that was obviously very dangerous for a enslaved person to do. But there were examples of that. And on the other hand, uh, some, some helped the American cause. And uh, Kuju did the latter. Uh, he um, knew a, a tavern keeper in Newport, and she was a German immigrant. And as you said, uh, a large part of the British army in Newport were German regiments. Uh, a lot of them from the from the, the state of Hesh, the Hessians, uh, were known as Hessians. And not all of them, but they were just known. All of them were known colloquially as uh, Hessians. And uh, the German uh, female tavern keeper spoke German, so she could speak German and heard, overheard the Germans talking. And Kujo would occasionally go down and visit uh, uh, Helga and uh, gain information that uh, just by talking to her. And just not, not exactly, she wasn't necessarily a spy for the Americans, but she was just talkative and the two would be talking and, oh, this is what I heard. Isn't that interesting? And Kujo would bring that back. And because he was an enslaved person, he was not suspected of being someone who could uh, you know, be a, sli- a spy. It is a fascinating account. And uh, do we know what happened to Kujo after the war? We don't. We don't, unfortunately. Yeah. Hmm. There was another, um, I mentioned the capture of General Prescott by the Americans. He had a, an enslaved person uh, at the house in which he was staying, the Obering house, John Obering. And he uh, served as Prescott's barber, cut his hair several times. But then he escaped uh, and he told the uh, Americans uh, some great uh, information, intelligence about uh, how often Prescott would stay at that farmhouse, and where, who were the British troops, how many were there, where they would stay. So very valuable intelligence. And he was rewarded with his freedom uh, after that. Oh, that's, fant- that's fantastic. You know, there's another throwback to Bill Blyer's interview uh, in which we have in Lower Manhattan, there's a fairly prominent tailor who was making uniforms for the British, right? And he was able to capture some fairly important intelligence about, you know, British plans and so forth as he was, uh, you know, sewing clothes and cutting cloth and so forth. So the barbers, the tailors, the folks who are in the unassuming positions, those are the ones you always have to be most <laughs> careful about, don't you? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So you have described thus far, um, for the most part, spying activities that were successful, uh, in which intelligence was gained, secured, uh, retrieved, 
and returned to uh, the officers who could act upon it and then make decisions and so forth. There is uh, no shortage, of course, (laughs) of the other kind of spies, the ones who did not make it home. And one of the ones you write about in your book is a man named John Hart. And he met the same end as some of the other figures that we know well of uh, from the revolution, such as Nathan Hale. Tell us about John Hart. Sure. Uh, It looks like he came from Little Compton, Rhode Island. So he was a a native. Uh, But he somehow was in New York City after the British took it over. And the British had this program where they were manufacturing, producing counterfeit money in each of the states. And they were going to send it, uh, send spies around to uh, to uh, uh, circulate that money. It, there were two purposes: one, to help out loyalists so they could pay their taxes and use the counterfeit money, and secondly, once the counterfeit money was just, you know it was determined that there's counterfeit money circulating, that would tend to hurt the economy, the local economy. And uh, the British were bold enough; they actually put in an advertisement in a in a British-controlled newspaper in New York City to, you know, for people to come and help out with his plan. <laughs> so George Washington found out about it, and he was outraged. But John Hart was one of the guys Smart who did move this. to advertise your intentions <laughs> yeah. in the newspaper. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Not, <laughs> not good spycraft. Not good spycraft. No, um, no. We've seen better instances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So John Hart uh, got out of that money, uh, went to uh, Newport. He was uh, introduced. Uh, he had a letter of uh, passage from the former governor of New York, who was a very prominent Tory. So he got uh, right in front of the commander-in-chief of the uh, British Army in Newport at the time, Earl Percy, and started working as a spy. He would go over in small boats. The British Navy would drop him off at various points. And at one point, he was going to try to kidnap some uh, uh, members of the state uh, legislature. Uh, another time, he uh, wanted to kidnap George uh, Waite Babcock uh, from Wickford. And, and he actually is uh, the captain of the ship of my latest book, which is called Dark Voyage, uh, an American privateer, Privateer's War Against the British Slave Trade. So Babcock is the captain of the, uh, of the ship Marlborough, which... Uh, privateer, and it's funded by John Brown of Providence, and it goes to Africa and attacks British slave ships, and is very successful. So, um, But he, Babcock started out as, a, uh, he, he formed this unit in outside of Wickford, what's now Wickford, Rhode Island, uh, to, uh, and basically that unit went around searching for Tories. And, uh, and so uh, um, John Hart wanted to capture him, but, and he actually had some British sailors with him at the time, but uh, it didn't, didn't turn out. But ultimately, uh, George, uh, a spy in New York, uh, escaped from a British prison, not a spy, just a prisoner, American prisoner, went to Washington and he said, I overheard that John Hart is uh, going to Rhode Island and is going to circulate counterfeit money, so you might want to do something about that. Washington did, sent out some letters. And um, then uh, uh, at a time when Hart was actually on the mainland in Rhode Island, General uh, James Varnum of the Continental Army was out there. And uh, what's the best way to get information? It's to find people you know who are Tories and threaten to blow their brains out and rough them up. 
and ultimately shake them down. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. no, uh, no rights, civil yeah. rights there. And uh, uh, somebody spilled the beans that he was at a certain house at an interior town, Exeter, in Rhode Island. They surrounded the house. They captured him, and um, he was brought to Providence. And the key decision was: we're not going to try him. As a, in a civilian court, we're going to try him in a military tribunal as a spy. And once that decision was made, his fate was sealed. Within one, 24 hours of his arriving in Providence, he was hanged. Quick justice. Now, you write that he, he nearly got away, though, didn't he? There was a, a sort of a rescue skiff that was sent out to try to, to grab him That's from right. his assigned pickup location. And, and yet... In his hour of need, uh, his need failed. Yes, the British Army sent out a force to, you know, agreed upon place to to take him off the uh, coast, but uh, American guards were there. It couldn't happen, so uh, he was on his own. And so he tried to, you know, stay at homes of people he knew who were Tories. But you know, it's in one one theme of the book here is that. Uh, Everyone knows everything. <laughs> you know what so the Tories knew all about this spy who was staying at a small house in Exeter. I don't know how they all knew that, but uh, that's that's the way it was in those days. <laughs> I think those of us, uh, Christian, yourself and myself, who come from small states, we just kind of understand that intuitively, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> We're just yes. you know, everybody's all up in your business all the time. You just kind of get used to it. Yeah, and, well, it was one um, big small town, except so. except the consequences. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's one more intelligence agent that I would like to uh, to ask you about because uh, I would say he, but it's not a he, it's a she, uh, was one of the few female spies in the, in the theater war. Um, and she was a spy for the British, actually. She was not a spy for the Americans. You tell us the story of Anna Bates. Why was she so effective at her trade? Well, uh, just to give a little background, she never actually appeared in Rhode Island, but she was a spy during just and just before the Rhode Island campaign, which was the outstanding military action during the war in Rhode Island. And she came from Philadelphia. She um, uh, became involved with a British soldier, and the British. And then she became involved with this guy who. Uh, was involved with spies, British spies. She moved to New York, and this guy who was uh, handling some spies for the British uh, befriended her and said, went to the main British, uh, Duncan Drummond, the main British handle, spy handler in New York, said, hey, she could be an effective spy. She disguised herself as a peddler, so just selling small goods, and she went into the American camp of Continental Army soldiers. Uh, they had moved from Outside of Philadelphia Valley Forge, they had moved to um, White Plains, New York, possibly to help with the Rhode Island campaign. Uh, and indeed, they were sending uh, divisions out under uh, uh, Lafayette, for one, and, uh, uh, and and others as well. So um, she was uh, in in as a peddler, selling little you know buttons and pieces of you know thread and pieces of you know, that kind of thing, small items. She looked like a very insignificant woman, so uh, an insignificant person. But again, that's who some of the best spies are. You know, being a woman and being, you know, just a, a mere peddler. Who who can be worried about her? And she uh, actually did come up with some valuable information, which was uh, 
And she would go back and forth. She'd have to go through checkpoints, as you said. She'd have to go through continental checkpoints, and that was certainly nerve-wracking. Uh, some people she knew uh, because they were British deserters, uh, deserters who had deserted from the British Army and joined the American Army. And there was one in particular, uh, somebody who she knew. But um, And uh, that person, after the third time she was circulating the camp, uh, she heard about that he was in the camp, so she decided not to go back anymore. Uh, now, she filed a uh, application for a uh, pension in, in London from the British government. And uh, uh, Duncan Drummond, the British spy handler, uh, said, you know, she was one of the very valuable. What she says was true. She really helped the cause and helped the American or the British uh, defeat the uh, the American army. I actually think, you know, if you go through exactly what she did and what she claimed, it doesn't all quite hold water. Uh, but still, uh, very impressive that she could uh, act in this manner and, and risk her own life and, and uh, you know, perform like this. You know, there's there's a certain amount of historiographic cleaning up work that you are doing throughout your book. I mean, where you're sort of saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. Uh, here's where other folks have kind of gotten it, gotten it wrong or, you know, things have been tweaked over time. And that's going to be the case with so so much of this field, right, uh, military intelligence. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of myth. There's a lot of myth out there, and, and actually the entire Revolutionary War. And, you know, I, I try to be very accurate in my history, uh, uh, you know, working with original sources, you know, countering a number of myths. But there's still so many uh, fascinating stories that are true in this by book that uh, uh, doesn't hurt to say, you know, there are a few myths out there. You know what? What is amazing in Anna's case, right, is that um, you reproduce an image of the uh, the page from the British officer's journal where he describes her activities counting cannon and counting uh, troop strength, you know, in That's Washington's right. army. And sort of, yeah, you know, you yeah. can't really argue with that, right, when it's in yeah, his own yeah. handwriting. Uh, yeah, it's I, really uh, something. Uh, yeah, I held that uh, notebook. Uh, it's in the Library of Congress, Manuscript Division. I held it in my hand, so that was uh, that was fun. Well, I just have uh, sort of one, one more main question for you about the research and writing uh, for this book. But before I ask you that, um, would, we have charted sort of the onset of the British invasion in Rhode Island, and we have seen how these agents are moving throughout the landscape, gathering intelligence, reporting on troop size, seeing uh, you know where the concentrations are, what the feints are, what the retreats are, and so forth. And the the stage is sort of being set for a major conflict, which becomes known as the Battle of Rhode Island. Would you just set that stage? Uh, for us, and we're going to let our listeners have the pleasure of reading about it in your book. But would you just get us kind of right up until that point where the conflict breaks out? Sure. Uh, the, the French uh, Navy arrives from France. Uh, they have secretly declared war on Britain. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> when they arrive on the coast down in the Delaware River, uh, they were trying to trap Howe's army there and Navy, but uh, that did not work out, so they wound up in Narragansett Bay. That's the you know there's a British garrison there. Let's uh, join with the Americans and uh, 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 set siege to Newport and take it over. And the key is that the British before it always controlled the waters because their navy was very powerful and the American navy was weak. Uh, but now the French had more powerful uh, 
battleships, you know, ships of the line, guns, uh, ships with uh, 60, 70, 80, 90 cannon. And now they control the sea. And so they could they could have invaded, you know, the south side of Newport. The Americans could have invaded from the north. And, and the British really had little uh, defense if the French had been able to uh, land some forces uh, to the south. Uh, and it looked like the British were done for. They were they were definitely concerned. Uh, but then suddenly, Admiral Howe shows up with his navy, and he's put together, scrapped together as many ships as he can. He's not quite as powerful as as Destang, but he's powerful enough for Destang to take notice of him. And Destang says, "You know what? I'm I've, I'm in Narragansett Bay. I'm about ready to. Uh, we were they were about ready to land and invade Newport, but instead he says, "I got to go and attack." that fleet. I can't have it hanging around there. So he sails after it. How, what does Howe do? He doesn't stand and have this great battle. He runs away. Uh, and he's leading the French fleet away from Newport. So now only the American army is in Newport. And that's not enough really to take over Newport. They, they need to control, they need the French. But then uh, uh, Howe, uh, after running away for two days, uh, there's a He's, he's circular, he's maneuvered, so he's got the so-called weather gauge. So he's got the wind and can come at the French Navy, and he's doing just that. And there's about to be a battle, but then a hurricane um, crops up, and it's a tremendous hurricane. Uh, it dismasts uh, the French flagship and harms other ships, harms some British ships. The French are hurt worse. Uh, there are some battles that are described in, in my book as well, some ship, ship battles. But the French said, you know what, we have to go back to Boston, not Rhode Island, and refit and get our fleet back in shape. So they can't uh, help the Americans now. So the Americans are on the island, and they're setting siege uh, to Newport. And, and you know, there's def British have defensive fortifications. This also brings to mind some of the interesting spy stories uh, at this point. Uh, the British had no spies at that point. So what did they do? Uh, they sent uh, sailors in small boats to parts of the mainland in Rhode Island, and they would capture them and bring them back. And they got incredibly accurate information from this one woman in Jamestown, an island. Uh, she said, well, uh, the uh, Americans have about uh, ten to 15,000 troops. They're going to invade in several days. Uh, there are going to be three points of invasion. Uh, she named them accurately. And she said that the uh, French are uh, eager to invade right away, but the Americans are slow in gathering all their troops. That was all accurate. It was amazing. It just goes to show how um, information circulates uh, throughout the communities, accurate information. Some of it wasn't always accurate, but a lot of it was accurate. Uh, other times, the British sent out uh, soldiers, and, and they would kidnap uh, 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 picket, American pickets and try to get information from them. So it was a... Interesting how desperate they were to gain intelligence. That set up the Battle of Rhode Island, um, which uh, was an underrated battle. Uh, the Americans did hold off the British. Uh, it was very well fought action on the American side, and, and the British as well. Uh, there was a black regiment that performed very well as well uh, from Rhode Island. So it was a, that's, that's part of my Rhode Island campaign book. Well, we're not going to spoil the ending. Everybody knows the ending, of course, because we're sitting here in uh, independent America talking about it, but um, we're not going to spoil the ending of that particular moment. I can assure our listeners that 
your storytelling is as good on the page as it is in person, Christian. And I have to say, I feel like I paid for the whole of my seat, but I only needed the edge. So thank you <laughs> for that. You. So that Appreciate was it. a bravura performance in, in getting us uh, to that moment. The last question that I have for you is... You researched so many cases of spying and intelligence and uh, agents risking their lives for both sides and for what they genuinely believed in. You know, we always try to humanize, you know, the, the people we talk about here. Was there any one particular case that just, I don't know, stood out for you or struck you in some way or, or surprised you as you read about it and then wrote about it? Well, it's difficult to pick just one. Uh, we talked about the Isaac Goodman case. <clears throat> uh, another one that's fairly well known as an American spy who was uh, on the uh, the island of Newport when uh, uh, the British were there. And he was uh, he would signal his spy master across the river uh, about what was going on. Uh, very dangerous. Um, but he uh, uh, was very successful. I mean, he I came across 38 letters to the American commander containing intelligence that he had. But I'd have to say the outstanding one was, uh, the, my favorite one anyway, occurred during the French occupation of Newport. Uh, and uh, you know, before they went to Yorktown, they sent one other expedition, uh, naval force, into uh, uh, Chesapeake Bay. And um, somehow the British got there first. So when the French arrived, they were actually going to try to uh, capture Portsmouth, Virginia, which was occupied and surrounded uh, excuse me, is occupied by Benedict Arnold, who had turned traitor. So this was one of his first actions after he turned traitor. And the Americans had an army around Portsmouth, small army. So uh, the French were going to try to capture him. And the French left. You know, the British were uh, trying to prevent some friendships from leaving, but there was a stormy day. They left. And, but the British got there first. How did this happen? Well, I found out that there was a, a Newport spy who was a Tory, prominent Tory, and he got to the uh, British Admiral and told him about the plan before the French even left. So he, that's how he was able to send uh, his ships and get there first. So that was, that was pretty shocking. Yeah, and another consequential action there too, definitely, wasn't it? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. This has been such a journey. I I can only exhort our listeners to go. There is so much more in the pages of your book about this campaign that we have only scratched the surface at the tip of the iceberg. I mean, it, there is so much more. Um, so I absolutely encourage our listeners who want to learn more to go and find spies in revolutionary Rhode Island. Thank you so much. This has been remarkable. And if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where should they do so? Uh, they could go to uh, uh, my book website, uh, christianmcburney.com. There we go. There you have it. Well, we hope to have you back on again. And um, in the meantime, uh, s stay undercover if you can. There's uh, no slip sync <laughs> ships, right? <laughs> Just uh, anyone around you could be a spy, so be careful so, out there. But be it's been a real pleasure. Be careful. <laughs> Thank you, Christian. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest has been Christian McBurney, author of Spies in Revolutionary Rhode Island, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop crime capsule. 
We'll be back soon with more exciting shows on true crime and American history. So stay tuned. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 